Welcome to the Behavior Groups Podcast. My name is Kurt Nelson. And I'm Tim Houlihan. Kurt and I have interesting conversations with insightful people about how to apply behavioral sciences to work and life. In this episode, we spoke with Dr. Michael Hallsworth, the Managing Director of North American Insights Team. We met up with him at his offices in Brooklyn. Michael was one of the early members of the UK's Behavioral Insights Team. Along with other members of the team, Michael contributed to the creation of models like Mindspace in 2009 and later the EAST model. Both are mnemonic tools for remembering key elements of behavioral science. We started out talking with Michael about replication of studies since he has tried, sometimes successfully and sometimes unsuccessfully, to replicate his own studies. Yeah, this is one of the great things about Michael, about how open he is to his successes and failures when it comes to testing. And this came to light when we discussed his very brilliant idea to change the format of the letter used by the British Tax Authority to collect taxes from delinquents. It worked great in the UK, but failed when he tried the same approach in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Hmm, what is up with Albuquerque, Tim? Well, you'll have to listen to the podcast to find out. <laughs> it's the old man voice for Albuquerque. Oh, oh, what oh, is going it, on that's, there? That's how people talk in Albuquerque. <laughs> oh, all of our Albuquerque <laughs> listeners, I apologize. Um, so with that, Michael shared his observations on confirmation bias and motivated reasoning. Both are prominent in our world today, which in my opinion means that we should even pay more attention to them. We then went down some fun rabbit holes on framing, like how using a virus metaphor for crime impacts how we respond to that crime and how tribal we are, even inside of governments. Different divisions can be tribal against each other. Of course, we ended on a musical note. Badoom chick. Of course. Yeah. And about how Michael played piano as a child, and he still plays a bit today. And kudos for keeping it alive at holiday gatherings, man. Yeah, kudos. Um, And he introduced us to a band that neither Kurt and I had ever heard of, Ockerville River, a very chill Americana band out of Austin, Texas. I like them. Yeah, I like them. Yeah, me too. It's great when our guests introduce us to new bands. Yes. So before you listen, we would like to ask you to help us out with a favor. Stars and written reviews really help move us up in Apple's and other pod services algorithms. On Apple, if you want to give us a star or five stars or write a review for us, all you have to do is click on the shows area, find behavioral groups, scroll down to the bottom past all of our 40 plus episodes now uh, to rate us and write a review. And if you did that, we would greatly, greatly appreciate it. Yeah, thank you in advance for your support. With that, enjoy your commute to work as you listen to our very interesting interview with Dr. Michael Hallsworth. And if you're not in a commute, please listen anyway. <laughs> All right? You don't have to be in a commute to listen to behavioral groups. I think it's better, though. Isn't it better if, you, if, if you're commuting? No, you can sit back in a chair with a glass of your favorite beverage in front of a fire and listen so intently. It is awesome. I think it's better commuting. (laughs) (laughs) We will have to agree to disagree. Enjoy Dr. Michael Halsworth. Welcome, Michael Halsworth, to the Behavior Groups Podcast. Thank you. It's good to be here. It's good to have you. It's good to be actually in your offices in New York. In New York, actually doing this live instead of over over the internet in some way. So we're excited to be here. Um, Tim, let's start with our mandatory speed round. Michelangelo or Monet? Michelangelo. All right. Good call. I think Monet is a bit wishy-washy. 
<laughs> we might have to go there later, all right? So, life with a mobile phone, without a mobile phone, or life without a laptop? Uh, life without a laptop. Okay. Up the mountain or down the mountain? I don't know what that means, but I'm going to say uh, down the mountain. Down right. the mountain, okay. Coffee or tea? Coffee. Coffee? Oh. English, in, English, all right. You've only been in America for four months, and you're... <laughs> okay. um, Is that yeah. a misnomer that all English drink tea? No, 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 it's not. My, my, my parents just drink it constantly. Um, uh, but it's just, I, I never end up finishing a cup of tea. My wife always uh, has a go at me and won't, won't make it for me anymore. I just, <laughs> I just don't finish it. Okay, okay. Uh, so, um, nudge or beyond nudge? Um, I think we, I think beyond nudge because um, we, I think we, nudge is something that we've done and we are doing, but um, I think there's always been stuff beyond nudge and I think Thaler and Sunstein would always say there's been stuff beyond nudge as well. So I'll go yeah. beyond nudge. Yeah. Yeah. George Lonestein's recent work has been pushing, let's, okay, we got the nudge thing down. Let, now let's get to the next level. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Well, and you were talking just uh, in pre-show as we were talking about this a little bit about some of the work that you were talking about behavioral government. Can you help us help people understand um, what you were talking about there? Because I think that's that's a little bit beyond nudge, right? So, yeah. so let's talk about that. Talk about some of that background and help uh, help the listeners understand what you were talking about with us there. Yeah, absolutely. So um, in terms of the beyond nudge stuff, uh, I think if you go back all the way to what we were saying in the Mindspace report, which came out in 2009, you know, we were saying that um, behavioral science is a lens through which you see government action. Uh, it's not just a tool in the toolkit. So um, you could say, it, I, we used to encounter this attitude quite a bit of, oh, we could do nudging or we could do some, some normal policy. And I was really like, well, well that's, that's not really a, a distinction that makes any sense. Um, all, all policies are intended to influence behaviour in some way, um, and sh so you should take into account the best evidence about what influences behaviour. And I think um, the behavioural government stuff is uh, a natural progression uh, from that, which is it takes um, the ideas from behavioural science and reflects them back on government. A lot of attention has been saying, how do we nudge people? But obviously... Um, there's a, a long-standing uh, awareness that uh, officials and politicians and policymakers more generally are also vulnerable to cognitive biases. Of course they are. Um, and institutions don't fully um, mitigate those biases. So what we wanted to do was draw together um, the new research, and there's been a lot recently over the last few years that looks at measuring these um, biases in uh, policymakers, and we said, well, let's collect all that together and uh, see what comes out, see what the main kind of issues are, and then try and come up with some uh, solutions. And I think we're pretty well placed to do that, having come out of government ourselves um, and seen it firsthand and been, frankly, uh, uh, vulnerable to all these same uh, uh, 
traps, I suppose. Um, sure, we're, we're, not, we're, we're all part of the same exactly. We're not same DNA. Well, Tim, you said you weren't well, in, in prior podcasts. I, I however, have, I have the yeah. rest of us do fall prey <laughs> to these right. traps. I like so. to believe that sometimes I'm I'm just above biases, <laughs> which are, which is horseshit, of course. But it is. <laughs> it really is. <laughs> but excuse yeah. me, Michael. <laughs> well, we all like to think you're familiar with the idea of the bias blinds bias blinds. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Um, yeah. But so, mine's intentional. I mean, I'm just going to just avoid it. <laughs> I mean, the, you know, that, that could be quite a good strategy, actually. It makes you feel good. It does. Yeah. And it's, it there good. are, you know, there is some evidence that optimism bias can be a quite health-protective thing. Um, yeah. As long as you're not doing too many dangerous activities, um, then... No. No, yeah. not me. No, I wouldn't do that. No. Could be okay. Okay, but back to, back yeah, to yeah. The, the policymakers and their biases. So, well, yeah, and... Uh, I, I say it. I'm not, not saying this in like, oh, you know, stupid politicians or anything like that. I'm saying this is just what happens when you're having to make a lot of decisions under certain pressures and so on. Um, so we did things like we said, you know, um, how exactly does uh, confirmation bias play out in the way we look at evidence for policy okay. um, or or framing effects? How do they influence what gets on the policy agenda? and how we interpret uh, these issues. Um, Or we looked at um, how really does does this optimism bias, um, which has been well documented, play out in in government. Um, And, you know, there are many examples of this. And and I should say one other thing is, in the middle we had a whole bunch of stuff around groups. So a lot of policy is made in teams. and those teams introduce certain dynamics that mean that you may not want to raise uncomfortable issues. You may not want to be the person who says, is this really going to work? Mm-hmm. Um, and so what we tried to look at, how could you um, address some of these? So I don't know if any of those are particularly interesting to you. I could all, take, well, take well, any of them, really. Actually, uh, all of them are, are, are framing and confirmation bias and optimism bias. Would you say are they the most prevalent? Are, do you find those... Uh, they're, I guess there's two questions here. Yeah. One is, are they more common among the policymakers than the general population, do you think? Or, or do, you, do you just see them given the context and the environment in which they're working that those are, are more common? Um, so it's, this is a really difficult question to answer, it's certainly empirically. So we, we put these, I think, eight um, biases that we drew in particular into this framework we have, um, which is around, you know, first... Noticing, um, so how do things get noticed? Mm-hmm. Um, deliberating, how do people discuss and, and debate um, issues to make a decision? And then executing, how do they those decisions get realised in practice? Um, and so the ones I just I gave you a scattergun sort of list right. of few of them there. Um, in, so we think these are all relatively prevalent and these are ones where there's pretty good evidence. Within those it's hard to say what is most prevalent. We actually did a kind of little survey of uh, government uh, officials, um, t- but only we only had like 60-odd responses, so we can't, we can't really say. Can't generalise out from that. Um, yeah. I, one thing we can say is that... Um, so if you take confirmation bias, we know that um, strong prior political um, views can affect 
the way you interpret it, evidence quite strongly. Mm. Yeah. And if you are a politician, then you've made a series of public prior strong statements. Um, so there's a really good paper which I uh, re really think your, your listener might be interested in um, called, I think, Evidence and Politics. It's in the British Journal of Political Science, 2017. The lead author is called Martin uh, Backard. Um, and another resource is called Julie, Julian Christensen. Um, we'll, uh, we'll reference it in the show notes. Yeah, in, it's, the, in the notes. It's really, it's really easy to read as well. Yeah. And they run, what they do is they get, um, they basically emailed like 900 Danish politicians, elect, okay. elected ones, and, and they gave them some simple kind of um, questions around, you know, uh, here's some evidence. Okay. Here, here at, like, here's school A and school B. Um, and here's the number of satisfied and dissatisfied parents okay. in, in each school. Okay. And um, the, they asked which school's performing better. Now, it, the, because the schools are of different size, you have to use some really rough percentages working out in your heads. It's not like really obvious straight away, but you can work it out generally. And if you give that to these Danish councillors, um, uh, around three quarters of them get it right. But if you um, if you uh, then, in a different arm of the experiment, say publicly funded or privately funded, like one school's public or private, something really interesting happens. The people who are maybe on the more on the right politically and more favour of privately funded schools, their correct response rate goes up to ninety odd percent. But if it's not in line with your prior views, it goes down to around fifty percent. Remember, it's. <laughs> It is a 50-50 chance, because there are only two options. Um, and the wow. reverse is true on the other political spectrum. So it's, it's a really amazing result. Um, and it just goes to show that the power of confirmation by some motivated reasoning is such that um, it can you know, affect even your... your maybe it's a, it's a question mark, is it ability or willingness to give the right answer? Um, but what's really troubling is the paper also shows that if you give more evidence, um, a more piece of it, evidence, it appears to make the problem worse rather than better. It doesn't help. No, and, and that no. is a kind of a problem because our whole sort of system is based on a lot of people trying to feed evidence in, uh, more evidence, better evidence, fund evidence-based policy. Um, and it appears it doesn't really work like that. In fact, it sounds like people become more resistant with additional evidence. Is that, um, is that a it statement? can do, yeah. I mean, we don't want to over-extrapolate because other studies have said that there is this kind of tipping point where mm -hmm. after a while there's just so much evidence that um, you you have to sort of admit that there's something going on here. Yeah. Um, but yeah. but when you're thinking about government and, and the, the way that government, again, is designed, it is designed to take a look at evidence and then hopefully draw the right conclusions out from that evidence to make sound policy that goes beyond whatever political spectrum that you're in, hopefully that, that, that that's what's going on. Mm -hmm. and, and obviously this is just another you know, case where the best way plans, it doesn't always work out because there's humans involved. And, and so humans are, are fallible in that way. Not fallible being the wrong probably term, that we, are, that we have these biases that, that we know about that impact how we actually interpret data, how we right. then respond to it. I was interested, you talked about, um, you know, you talked about all these framing and optimism bias and everything, but you also talked about groups. 
yeah. and how policy is made in teams. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that Tim and I have been really talking about a lot lately um, with very different things is just how is that context of that team, and particularly we, we find in, in the political arena that you, you have this almost tribal component around your, your, your team and, and the impact that that has. So mm. help us understand some of the, the research that, that you found there. Yeah, sure. So um, we talk about this in the, under the term intergroup opposition. Okay. And um, I, I've seen this myself uh, firsthand. Um, uh, it's just, okay, let's step back. So the, the theories around basic idea of in-group and out-group. Mm-hmm. Um, well known that you are... Um, more likely to discount or um, ignore evidence if it's come coming from out group, yeah, rather versus, than, and support the in group stories whether or not they're good. Yeah, um, and there's some you know there's some really interesting nuances uh, here as well around how you also have things like false polarization. So you have a tendency to think that the um, the out group is more different from you than it actually is. Mm. And we show in the, the report some really interesting studies from a couple of years ago now that you ask people, you know, where, uh, if they support, I think it was affirmative action or something, how far on the left are they or, and compared to you? And, yeah. and everyone um, overestimates how far the other group is, is different from them. And actually, the, the, the two, in terms of their opinions, the two groups are really quite close, but you, you kind of push them away and you discount what you say, they're saying and they must be saying this because they're biased, they're wrong in, in some ways. And what I think is, is interesting and perhaps not thought about enough is this kind of thing does go on even within government. So you have departments with different worldviews. Yeah. Mm. And if you uh, have a policy where they have to collaborate, which is quite often, um, then you see this bias creeping in. And I, I've seen it where there are two departments in the room. One department is just has this prior assumption that the other one won't doesn't support their worldview, doesn't have the same interests as them. And I was listening to what the, the other group was saying, and I thought it was really helpful to them and actually was advancing their agenda, but the, there wow. was just this inability to listen to it because they're different. They're well, the we see this in corporations. We, we've just done some work with uh, a company recently where sales and marketing were at odds, and, and sort of the sales you know, side of the organization is like, well, those, those damn marketing people, they don't know what they're, you know, they're always trying to rule the world. And then the marketing people are saying, salespeople never listen. And, you know, and really, yeah. they're out to do the same thing. They're, they're really on the same team. But the way that they behave when they're up against each well, other. And, and in this case, and maybe this is the same in government, I'm not sure, but they're talking two different languages to a certain degree. I mean, they are actually, marketing is talking these marketing research studies and, and sales is bringing in their, um, you know, per firsthand accounts of dealing with, with their clients. And, and they're putting more weight on, on those, you know, one-off kind of components and these are putting more on the larger, you know, the yeah, you might have that one-off, but in general, this is it. And they're going, but we're hearing, these stories over and over and over again. And there's, there, you know, and so they just come at things from a different, to your point, different world viewpoint or mindset. And so it, it brings that in. And I don't know if there's language differences or not that you've noticed in, in some of that. Um, oh, there'll definitely be, yeah, language difference, framing differences. Framing, yeah. Um, yeah. You know, I'll just digress into framing for a second. There's some really fascinating stuff um, that goes to the heart of politics uh, in framing. Um, 
there's a study um, which we, we talk about where, you know, you, um, you give people some fictional statistics uh, about a city. Yeah. Um, and some people see this as um, uh, it, it, the statistics about crime, actually. And okay. some people just get a really, it's a really small difference. Uh, one group, uh, it's crime is presented as a virus kind of spreading and it's created by an sort of an unclean environment. That's yep. the metaphor used. And the other group gets this metaphor of kind of a wild, crime is a wild animal. It's preying on people and it's attacking people, right? And depending on the metaphors used, there's like a, a very big difference um, in the policy that people recommend, uh, people choose to combat crime. Um, oh, either wow. a... Um, one which is, you know, focused on uh, prevention and clean, a clean Cleaning environment up. and so on, or one which is like locking up. Command and control. Yeah, the, yeah. and um, we give an example, actually in a footnote, which was a really nice example. You can see this in the debates around crime, totally. Like, um, you'll see people using totally different metaphors, which are also then, um, these frames are incompatible. Yeah. So it's not like... It's not, and this is a real problem when you, you try and get some resolution because they just hit up against each other. There's no common language because um, you're operating on totally different metaphors. Well, and they're, they're, I'm making an assumption here, but it seems like they're talking to their team or their tribe or their political base in, in those types of instances who, who align with that metaphor. And it goes back to some of Jonathan Haidt's work, right? In in you know the righteous mind, in the righteous mind, and moral reason, you know, moral reasoning, and 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 the way that you actually are interpreting, um, you know, those 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 really fundamental moral components. And so, yeah, you're talking metaphors, but those metaphors resonate or they don't resonate better with your with your base. And so, crime crime is a really emotive topic but you can see this um, even in less emotive ones um, maybe like so we give an example of um, uh, is a redevelopment or around in a forest around a town is it an economic thing or is it a um, uh, an environmental thing okay and you can see how people have totally different views on it and that, that influences what they um, do um, and the, the issue is that um, you, you can actually do some stuff to bridge this. So we talk about reframing, you know, and you can find ways of bridging across the, the different frames people are using, connecting the frames, finding, finding, like, there can sometimes be relatively small shifts from your perspective that mean a lot to the other side. Uh, and, which, which is going to require uh, the removal of this very black and white thinking, that we need to start thinking, we need to be willing to think in percentages or, or start to divide up, okay, I, 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 I'm mostly committed to this, but I'm not 100% I'm not committed to something. I'm willing to, to be open to a, a slightly different frame, right? Yeah, exactly. And, and so just moving on to like some solutions here, we... We, you know, you can't focus on these behaviours in isolation. Say it's just about people. It's also about. It's mainly about the institutions and the systems in which people work. And that's one of the insights from you know behavioural science. So um, there are these reframing techniques you can use. Um, and with the um, in-group and out-group stuff, um, mm -hmm. there are things you can do. Like we we talk about um, 
collaborative red teams. And I'll just explain what that means there. So um, red teams are this idea which is fairly well known as used in the military and other places, uh, cybersecurity. It's a team that is explicitly um, tasked to come in and challenge uh, the system, break into the system or break down your policy or break down your idea. Um, so they, they work. They're, there's a good rationale for them. But if you go back to the in-group, out-group thing, can you see sort of the problem with them? Yeah. Uh, you're coming in and I'm just going to say, I'm going to discount your views because you're an outsider who's come in to try and knock us down and be defensive against it. So yeah. we were kind of thinking, well, what maybe what you want to do is if you're developing a policy, um, you have a team and then at some point a couple of a few members of your team split off, disengage themselves, come back later in the process and act as the challenge. So they're part of the same team, they're not being this out-group, they're the in-group, but yeah. they're now just having a different perspective. Yeah. Which was a problem that Apple faced when Steve Jobs was uh, leading the Macintosh development team. They, uh, he wanted it to be a, a very separate group, so he went out into the middle of, of campus and set up a big tent and hoisted a, jo a Jolly Roger flag over the top to indicate we're the pirates. And then there was a group of people that worked on the Macintosh, and then this large group of people that did not. And it was very exclusive. It became, they, they segregated themselves physically and emotionally, and then when the Macintosh team needed support from the rest of the organization, they weren't getting it because mm -hmm. they had done such a good job of becoming a red team. They, they failed to, to, to integrate with all the other systems that were going to rely on, <laughs> on getting the product produced and marketed and all those kinds of things. So um, They built a lot of great cohesion on, on the Macintosh team, but to the detriment of that, that working across the divisions within, within so. uh, Apple itself. And it sounds yeah. like that's some of the things. But I like the idea of, you know, again, just some minor shifts in thinking about have them be part of the team, separate them to, from the to team, and then and bring them back. Yeah. I, I want to go, now this is, we're going back very early in the conversation, but Mindspace is mm. a really important element that maybe not all of our readers are familiar with, the, uh, the work that you did on Mindspace, which was the forerunner to East, and I'm going to put links to all this stuff in the, in the, in the notes for the episode, because people should be fully aware of East and Mindspace. But give, a, give us, a, if you could, give the listeners an encapsulized view of Mindspace. Mm, okay. Um, are you interested more in uh, what it is or the history of what it well, the history. Let's yeah, hear the let's history. Hear the history. This, yeah, is, yeah. this is story time. We can, we can, people can read the paper, but, but, <laughs> but let's, let's, hear, let's hear the history. How did uh, it come about? Um, so, uh, it, essentially there was a, um, a minister um, called Liam Byrne, who was uh, a minister in the, the, the cabinet office, which is one department of government in, in the UK, the kind of central department. Um, and I, I, now I have to remember this. I think he was just interested in, like, so Nudge came out. Right. And he was, he was interested in the ideas. And um, I think also he had registered that the then opposition party, the Conservatives led by David Cameron, were, were making a big thing of this. Um, and were sort of... The, uh, of, of nudging? Yeah, or? yeah. Because um, so the, uh, George Osborne, who went on to be the, um, the Chancellor of the Exchequer, so man in charge of the money um, okay. uh, for uh, six years. Um, he did an op-ed with 
Richard Thaler in 2008-9, I think. So it was known that um, the, the opposition party were going for this because it was a new, interesting idea. Um, it, it appealed to them because it was maybe an alternative to regulation, the mm-hmm. way they were thinking about it. And oh, so... Interesting. Um, Limburn um, spoke to um, a, a guy called uh, Michael Bichard, who's uh, in the House of Lords now and was running the Institute for Government at that point, which was actually relatively new then. It was a, a kind of think tank which was um, uh, set up to make government more effective. Um, and David Halpin, who uh, runs the Pavel Insights team now, um, was the person who effectively kind of set it up and was director of research there. He said, like, could you, can we find out more about this behavioral economics thing and effectively commissioned the Institute to do something on it. Um, Dave, I was working in the Institute then. Um, Dave was my boss. Um, David approached um, uh, Paul Dolan at the London School of Economics, who Mm. we'd worked, well, David knew previously, Uh and also two of his PhD, PhD students then, I think. I think they were um, Dominic King um, and, and Ivo Vlav, oh. um, who's now a professor at, at Warwick. Um, Ivo may have, Ivo, I think, actually was a lecturer then at that point. And basically, we just the five of us worked uh, to um, produce this um, this report. And at some point, so Paul Dolan had been thinking about a mnemonic, uh, which was SNAP, I think. Um, SNAP. Uh, yeah, but it was more focused on salience and priming and stuff. Oh. And at some point, we had we had wanted to add more of the social psychological dimensions in, um, and so after a lot of playing around with letters, um, <laughs> I, I, you, I remember the very quite late on there was a point which we said, oh well, we can shift this around. E was emotion it could become affect, and then it works. Oh, I um, see. <laughs> but at some point, also quite a funny thing you might want to know is that do you know what the only anagram of um, mind spaces. The only anagram of mind space. No. All right, I'm looking no. at the. I'm looking at it right words. now. The letters. Pace. Uh, no, I don't. <laughs> I'll give you clues. Disease. I should have told you before. You're gonna have to just tell us because so we'll, we'll spend next five minutes trying to figure this out. So pandemics. Pandemics. Pandemic. There it is. Pandemics. Oh yeah. my god. So we did just briefly think. Oh, How weird think, is that? That's, that's weird, isn't it? Um, well, what, so, was the, what was the point of coming up with the mnemonic? Okay, sorry. Yeah. So the point of the mnemonic was um, up until that point, um, there had been a few reports that tried to apply behavioural science to policy, or, or had tried to sum up kind of theories of behaviour change, but they'd been quite inaccessible. They'd been difficult to work with if you're a policymaker. So. Um, the idea was that a mnemonic is not everything, but allows you to remember some essential things, yeah. and it might break through in in sort of salient way, so people could actually use it. Yeah. Um, and and I think that's kind of what it did actually. It was breakthrough as far as I was concerned because it also, in my mind, it, it sort of gave um, it gave some shape to all of the all of our general biases and the heuristics that we use in our decision making, and it, and it provided some shape. Yeah. Um, and uh, and then and then in my own practice, East is what I use with clients because it's just it's just four letters because you know. And well, that's I think exactly, Halpern acknowledged that. Yeah, that's exactly right. So, um, MySpace is 
really good because um, it kind of collected things together. It was never meant to be like a really academic thing. It was meant to be a, you know... A practitioner. Pract- thing, yeah. Um, uh, but then we found that people were saying, well, if you try and do it in a workshop, it can take quite a long time to... You know, there are nine letters and you don't, <laughs> you don't get beyond the M sometimes. Um, uh, and so we, we said, well, um, people are actually asking for a more an even more condensed, um, easy to access kind of uh, framework. So that's where East came from. Well, it is. Okay. All right. So, so for those people who are still sitting here going, all right, what the hell is Mindspace and what the hell is East? Just uh, again. Do you want me to do it? Yeah. yeah. Just, just oh. kind of encapsulate. Okay. Um, all right. I'll, because what, I can send them in the, in the, in the I know you can, notes. but right. they're just but, sitting but here we, we, we are sitting here with, with one of the creators of Mindspace, so, <laughs> so, so this is where I hope I don't get it wrong. Um, well, you don't have to say all of it. You can just kind of encapsulate. Yeah, Mindspace is a, is a mnemonic for things like uh, messenger incentives, norms, uh, defaults. So every letter um, stands for a concept or a, an influence uh, from, from behavioral science, and they spell out Mindspace as a whole. East is about making things easy, attractive, social, and timely. So it's the same principle but it's much shorter. Yeah. And it is about the influences on behavior. It's not, it's not so much, uh, yeah. Mindspace is not a, um, a model to, yeah. to, to build from. It, it's, it's a way of sort of processing these, right? It's a, yeah. to identify what the influence is. It was, at the, the, the very least, we're like, have you uh, kept these things in mind? Have you thought about these things? Have you thought about these if, things? You, yeah. if you're about to launch a policy, you know, uh, have you just considered, you know, <laughs> the, the, what is the default? You know, what, what, you know, what, what are the incentives here, and what, what are the social norms, all these kind of things? Yeah. Uh, was it was it unbearably difficult? Was it fun uh, in, in the development process? I mean, the, uh, so yeah, we, there was a point where because we wrote MySpace in three months, so it was really quick kind God, of thing. That's um, and it, there was a point I remember where. It was, there were some late nights and like will it actually ever work so yeah there were some there were some difficult parts it's a long time ago now yeah yeah but it has had a, a, a huge impact in in this arena and I know as, as Tim mentioned East is uh, one of those things that is used all the time I think at least in in our world of, of consulting around this this component and Mindspace, probably less so, but I think for some of the reasons that you just mentioned. Yeah. Well, and if it wasn't for Mindspace, I don't think East would make so much sense, actually. But, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, it, I don't want to say it's derivative, but it, it, it feels like Mindspace had to be step one in order to get to, to East. Yeah, I mean, it was only meant to be sort of a, a step forward. Um, oh, really? Okay. Yeah, Mindspace, yeah, it wasn't meant to be, this is it forever. Um, a step forward, see if it works, see if people like it, and can use it. Um, I love that. Yeah. So, Michael, we saw you speak at a conference a couple of weeks ago out in San Francisco, and one of the things that um, you talked about in that conference were some of these studies that you have done, some that, again, use some framing mechanisms that work spectacularly. And then the same frame in another situation didn't work so well. In another context that didn't work so well, which both Tim and I were um, salivating over because those are, that's where the learning happens in, in our mind. It's not in what works, but it's when, wh- why didn't this work and various different things. So um, again, not to put you on the spot, but um, can you kind of outline just briefly for the listeners what, what some of those studies were and, and kind of what you found? 
maybe the, the, the tax collection study? Um, yeah, so uh, these are all studies we did um, as part of the big What Works Cities program, um, which uh, Bloomberg Philanthropies run. And uh, they look, so here's the very brief narrative. Um, uh, we know that there are certain principles that in general influence behavior, and um, you know, one of them is making uh, the the narrative or the message really clear and make it really obvious what you're asking someone to do. And we've shown this in many situations. Um, that you can, for example, increase uh, payments of overdue fines by um, just revamping letters, make it very clear, even just the visual representation of taking out text. Yep. Um, making uh, you, the, the, the desired behavior very clear and central and Isolated and larger fonts like, you uh, know, around, around the yeah. fine, for instance. Transferring it from a lesser way, you your first in, instant reaction is eek to <laughs> um, to one. Oh, I get I get it. Like, so I don't like it, but I get it. Um, mm -hmm. uh, so we showed various, and there are many many examples of this. Yeah. Um, but then you know you, you you'd think that the same principle can can be applied in you know pretty much any situation. It's is fairly locked in. Um, we then went to do some work um, uh, with Albuquerque, and they were interested in um, uh, increasing registrations or de declarations that you were a woman or minority-owned uh, business in the area, I believe, because uh, I think there was some interest or desire to contract more with uh, that kind of business. And, and we're talking about Albu Albuquerque, New Mexico. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah Albuquerque, New Mexico. And... Um, what, what we did was we, they were writing to these businesses and saying, you know, go online and register to show you, you you're in this status, uh, you know, that it could benefit you in some way. Um, and we, we redid the letter to make it much clearer and to say, you know, we're looking, are, are you owned, uh, are you women owned, da, da, as kind of headlines, make it very clear. Um, the same principles, but it backfired. Yeah. Fewer people uh, registered than the, the standard, rather boring, formal-looking letter. Um, and we were trying to work out why this was, and we could identify a few things, like it's an unexpected communication. It's not like the latest a letter um, in a sequence about your mm -hmm. parking fine. Um, it's about one where, a, a behavior where it's totally voluntary, there are no real you know, consequences um, to it. Oh. Um, and also, it's one where it could be kind of difficult to establish, is this is this real? Is this authentic? Does it look a bit like marketing material that, does it jar with, like, is this the kind of thing I expect this city From government? From the government to, to be saying. sending to me. It didn't look like me. a formal government message. It looked a little too slick. That's, yeah, or it just looked kind of the style and tone maybe was not what people expecting something wasn't quite right um, mm -hmm. in their expect for their expectations um, and so it took us back to a few things over the years where we'd seen studies or where, where we'd try to make things quite um, salient or kind of attention grabbing uh, and they had not worked and one was around um, uh, in, in 2015, we worked in Plymouth in England um, to increase the uptake of insulation in homes for okay. energy saving. And we'd seen that there was some evidence that, you know, 
um, using thermal imaging can engage people more with the um, the potential for insulation because insulation is not the most interesting topic. Um, so, can <laughs> so you're you, trying to make it visual. Yeah, no, and wow. that's exactly what we did. And we showed a, um, a house with all the heat escaping from it. Um, um, that was one of the upgraded letters, and another was the same house and then its next door neighbor, which had been insulated and shows no heat escaping. Trying to make it visual. Yeah. Um, and the results showed that the, the pictures made it worse. Like fewer people <laughs> oh, took no. up the um, took up the installation, uh, and there was an actually there was an incentive of about five thousand dollars wow. to do this at some point as well. To 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 proceed with the installation. Yeah. Um, if you could be bothered to to do it and and you know do the work to clear out your things um, temporarily, then there was an incentive over the long term in terms of. I can't remember what it was. It was part of something called the Green Deal. Well, aside from reducing your energy bills, right? I'm assuming that it would yeah. cost less. Yeah, over the time it would cost less. But there was there was an actual upfront incentive, I remember, yeah. as well. Um, and then we also thought of a final example where in 2013 we did a study around organ donation. Uh, it was a million people in a trial about uh, a timely Reminder that you could join the organ donor register just after you re renewed your vehicle tax. Mm -hmm. um, we put a load of different um, changes to the page you saw after doing the, the tax renewal. Um, and one of them uh, had a social norm. One of them had a social norm and a picture of the National Health Service logo. And one had a social norm and a picture of people, you know, like a crowd of people yeah. looking happy. Um, uh, which we thought would be effective because it kind of reinforces the social norm through a different channel, through a picture. Um, uh, that was the only picture that, that bombed. It, it, did, <laughs> uh, it did worse than no message, uh, than just a message saying, please join the organ donor register. And every other message improved it, including the ones that were almost that were identical apart from that picture. And we think there was something about this picture looking like stock footage. We don't, it just, yeah. people didn't like it. So yeah, I remember that, yeah, the, that you talked about this idea that the perception might have been, oh, they could have just grabbed this from anywhere. It was sort of haphazardly put together. It's, it, 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 this isn't real people. These aren't real people, they're, they're yeah. models. Or, well, we, it's very difficult to know because in hindsight, we, we came, came up with all kinds of explanations, you know? Yeah. But I think it's interesting because we see this, or I see this in, in business all of the time, is this kind of component where they say, well, what worked at that other company? And just let's apply it over here. And, and what, I mean, the nice part about what you've done and, and shown here is that you, you've actually tested these different messages and looked at the uptake on them and various different things. And things that, to your point, should have worked based on prior experience and all of the research up to that point didn't. And they didn't because of some reasons that, you know, we may not know. We, we, we didn't, we, we obviously didn't know going into it. And even on the outcome, we can make some guesses at it, but it's different things. But too often, I think people go into these things without thinking about how do we test this? How do we make sure that, yeah, it can have the best science behind it in the world, but context matters. And there's this component of saying, this context might be just different enough than the context that was before it, that it no longer works in the way that we think it will be. The good thing is that we can, over time, build up our knowledge so we can 
maybe expand the, um, the the options that we test or expand. And how we apply yeah. it, right? It, in this in instance, we need to apply this type of messaging. In this instance, well, that won't work so well. So let's think about some other way of doing it. And that's what happened in the end with us. So we then had this final example where we thought that there were similar conditions to some of what I was talking about in, say, in Albuquerque. Um, this, is a, this is actually in Oklahoma City. And um, we, so we chucked in there as well a formality option because the, the city had designed a quite nice-looking flyer. Okay. Um, and we thought, well, what happens if we put in, given these, these conditions, one that just looks like a boring official letter, and it was the best performing. <laughs> the boring official letter was the best performing. And, and what was yeah. the messaging? What was the, what was the, the purpose and, and the audience for this? It was around, so it's quite a complicated one. It was around something called EMSA, which was um, a, a kind of insurance fund to do with emergency transport, which pe people had been automatically enrolled into with their water bill. And if enough people opted out, as people were gradually opting out, then it would have some negative consequence for the cost of the whole program and have to be funded through general taxation in some way. Okay. Um, and it was just better for the participants and for the, the, the city government if they voluntarily subscribed to it. Yeah, interesting. That's but interesting. again, it goes back to what you were saying in Albuquer Albuquerque, right? It, it probably was something, I mean, that the letter would be an unexpected thing, yep. and it didn't, so it played into some of those same uh, environmental contexts that, is that even a word, context is? Did I, I just make that just up? I just made that one up. I just made that up. Yeah. That's what I thought. I but, do that. But it's the first one this episode. <laughs> <laughs> Check. I, I'm doing better than, than, than normal. I got two more to go before you we said get it in a, in a very convincing way. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, up until I doubt myself, then I, I, I do. I, I'm sorry, but it's said in, the, in the, said in those contexts that you then can say, all right, so in this instance, let's bring in that more formal letter because... We've seen it work in this instance, and there are some of these parameters that might be the best best option. And I think for, for any of our listeners who are in business, in government, or in just in personal life, I think that's a really important thing is, you know, we, we, we generalize these principles, these biases, these heuristics across wide scales of yeah. our lives, our business, whatever. And oftentimes, we really need to do a much better job of saying... Well, sometimes we're right. Sometimes it's a good call, but it's not always a good call. Right. Because context matters. Mm -hmm. Michael, what um, we, we have listeners who are practitioners, uh, in, as, as Kurt just mentioned, in a variety of different environments, government, uh, the uh, corporate world, um, and, and some are academics, some are doing research. What, what do you think are uh, two or three tips that you would want to offer listeners when it comes to applying behavioral sciences? So I can give a tip around running trials, which is obviously not the same thing, right. um, but it would be really focus on the details. So the, um, the ideas are not the hard work quite often. It's, it's the uh, making, like really going into the details of how does this system work? You know, you, you said that you can randomize, but what do you mean by that? Um, thinking through kind of almost obsessively what could go wrong here and how are we going to adjust for it? Um, you know, taking time to 
and really develop a relationship with the people who are delivering a service who really know what's going on. That is the stuff that I always think is the most important. All right, Michael, tip number two, um, just in, in, in what our listeners might learn or do. I think t- tip number two, um, get, so if you, again, if, you're, if you think about intervention, I think it's really interesting to ask your colleagues uh, to predict what will be the most successful mm. uh, thing you try. Uh, and the reason I say that is because otherwise you forget um, what you what your prior views were. Hindsight bias. Yeah, absolutely. So you forget that I thought that the social norm and the picture would be the most effective one. I, d- I didn't forget that actually, because well, <laughs> of course you didn't. But 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 I was totally wrong. And uh, some um, quite famous uh, academics, I'm not going to name, uh, also predict that beforehand. Um, yeah. Yeah. And uh, you, but but if you don't do that. You don't really have a record where you can actually say, yeah, no, that challenged our preconception. Otherwise, you explain it away really easily. Yeah. Caroline Webb talked about something like that again, and she said, write it down. You know, write down what your prediction is, because otherwise you'll come back and you'll, you'll look at it and go, oh, yeah, I knew that was going to happen. I knew that formal letter was going to be better. Mm-hmm. All right. Um, do you have a number three? Um, you don't have to. No, I think those two are fine. Okay, okay. I think those two are fine as well. It has come to that point in our discussion where we get to talk about music. And All right. so uh, you grew up playing the piano. Uh, how did that influence your musical tastes? Oh, um, I actually, yeah, so I, I think it might be the, the other way around, really. So oh, nice. I didn't start playing the piano until I was like 12, um, so quite late. Oh, wow. And I think that's because I was I just really did like music, so it was more of a choice to to. To, to play it, I suppose. Um, nice. So, yeah, and um, I think it's just quite a good instrument also to uh, to compose on. It's something nice about being able to see all the options in front of you, mm. I like as well, <laughs> on the piano. Yeah. So you weren't, forced in, you weren't forced into this by not, your parents no, and saying, you no. have to... So my eight-year-old daughter that I'm forcing to go to piano lessons right now... Um, I was yeah. not forced into it, no. That's, that's the kind of the interesting, I suppose. So did you, did you start playing piano with the hope that someday you would play the best Christmas carols ever? <laughs> yes. I, it's true that mainly I play Christmas carols now because... Uh, it's when I go back home and uh, I have access to, to a piano, um, but uh, it was not my. It wasn't my motivating no, that ambition. Wasn't that no. Okay. So what, what was your what, what was part of the inspiration for for playing? I ju- I just really quite liked music, uh, or, and I think at some point it, there was a. Uh, I actually remember there was a keyboard at a. Um, I don't know what you call it in the US. It's like, we call it a kind of a jumble sale or a car boot sale, which is like where people bring their old things to sell. A flea market. Yeah, like a, yeah. Is that, does that sound familiar or a garage yeah. sale? Yeah. But this is a community thing? Is that, yeah. is that right? Okay. And I remember, um, I think it must have been about nine or 10, I actually convinced my parents to spend uh, not very much money on an old keyboard because okay. I was just really interested at that point. Um, yeah, and uh, I enjoyed it a lot. Yeah. Um, and do you play still? When I can. When you can. Okay. What do you listen to? What What's your What's on your What's on your playlist? What do you What are the things that you um, listen to these days? Uh, it's a good question. I'm a uh, so, so I'm a big fan of like a band called Ockerville River. If you've ever heard of them. 
Can you spell that? O K K E R V I L River. Um, where, where are they from? Any I get a feeling that they might have met in Austin, but the guys from from the northeast of the U.S. Okay. Um, so I was okay. Um, when I was younger, big fan of um, uh, REM, particularly yeah. particularly the eighties incarnation of R.E.M. Yeah, well, um, great, it was great stuff. I yeah. Mean, yeah. Uh, Driver 8 fan. was one of my favorite songs. It's Driver 8 is a yeah. great yeah. song. Um, absolutely. And I'm um, going to confess, I went to see Steely Dan. Um, <laughs> you don't have to confess. <laughs> what? That's, that's fine music. Yeah, I did go and see Steely uh, Dan the other week. Uh, I'm going to say that. And I think it, I thought it was really good. Good. Yeah, and who's, who's playing with them right now? Is... is uh, well, not Walter Becker. That's yeah, well, thank you. Yeah, regrettably, uh, rest in peace, Walter. But, um, but uh, I mean, uh, there's always sort of a, a rotating lineup. I mean, I, I got to see Walter, uh, I got to see uh, Steely Dan with Michael McDonald and uh, playing additional keyboards and singing, which is pretty great since he sang on, you know, some big hits. Josie yeah. and, you know, Peg and all those, those, those great hits. Uh, and Boss Gags was playing guitar. And that was really a treat. Boss Gags is a terrific guitarist. Yeah. I, who, who knew, right? I didn't know. I don't like, know who he is. You don't even know who he is. <laughs> I know who he is. I'm just looking blank, stupefied, because that's oh, my yeah. normal talk okay. or look when we talk about music. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay, so you like to see live music as well. I think, I, yes and no. So um, I think it can be really good, but I think overall it's quite an expensive way to spend your time because uh, particularly when you might see something not very good yeah yeah well wow. and in new york wow. you have a lot of options for that and i think probably at price points at, that you can probably do it too so so it can be like some of the best so i, I went to glassman in 2009 which was brilliant um i think you had bruce springsteen and um and radiohead and people playing and it was it was really really amazing and then sometimes you you'd spend um, I don't know, forty dollars uh, minimum, I suppose, and you'd be like, why did I do that? That yeah. was that was terrible. Yeah. Well, and the time, the time it takes to commute yeah. and you know line up line up all the things that you need to line up to get there and yeah. to do all that. Yeah, it's 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 it's, it's there's effort. Well, and then you get into you know some of the bigger shows where you're in a stadium and depending upon where your seat is, that still can cost two hundred, three hundred dollars, and you're you know. There's, there's you too, but you know they look like mini little people up there, and the, or you're the just watching them on the on the big screen. Yeah, and you're like, oh, why did I spend all this money when I could have just, you know, seen the YouTube video? I actually live in New York. It's, I, it's quite good. I saw Smashing Pumpkins at Madison Square Garden. So oh, it was that really was cool. good. Well, okay, yeah. so Madison Square Garden is a great venue to, to, to start with. It's a great place to actually see a show. I think it, that this tour, I don't know if it's still going on, is, is actually really good. I've heard that from other people. Yeah, they played in Minneapolis just uh, a little while ago. Got some pretty decent reviews there. So, yeah. Cool. Okay. Well, uh, do, we, Michael. do we have anything else? Michael, do you have anything that you would like to ask us? Um, <laughs> Timmy, this is not how this works. You know, I, know. Uh, I, was just, I was just throwing something out there, and <laughs> you had a perplexed look on your face, and so no. that's enough. Yeah, that's great. Okay, yeah. Michael, thank then you. Then we want to thank you. We're very grateful. Uh, it's time. been a pleasure. Welcome to our grooving session, where Tim and I groove on what we learned from our behavioral groups interview, have a free-flowing discussion on some of those topics, and whatever else comes into our chill heads. Chill. It's kind of cold today here in Minnesota, so I thought chill would be appropriate 
term for our heads. And you're kind of thinking about uh, Ockerville uh, River. You're oh, thinking about the uh, those guys, chill, the, the Americana band. Cool, cool sound. Yeah, they're cool. Chill sound. There we go. Yeah, yeah. There we go. So Tim, what were some of the things that you thought Michael brought up that you want to group on? Well. I- Gosh, there's a lot, right? It was a great discussion, and we we did cover a lot of things. Uh, it might be good just to for our audiences to make sure that everybody's grounded in mind space and easy. Um, that might be a good thing to, to east. Yeah, did I say easy? You said easy. Yeah, I mean it is easy it to is. to mix up east and. And easy, and easy, yeah. But it is east. It is east, yes. Yeah, so, um, so I was thinking maybe we should just start with that. Um, good. How, how about that? Good. And I, I love mind space. Um, it's a hard to remember all of them, but the, yeah. but I really like the first one, which is messenger. Yeah. Uh, you know, so we're heavily influenced by who communicates the information. It's the messenger effect. And again, in our today, in the political environment that we're in, as well as even just thinking about, um, you know, people we like or people we don't like, uh, the content of the message is less important sometimes than who is actually saying we, that message. We've encountered this in our in our work. You know, I've worked with a client uh, where the, the they were asking farmers to choose more sustainable farming methods. The farmers were not interested in listening to either the manufacturers of the seed or the academics who did the science behind it and the studies, but they were willing to listen to each other. Mm-hmm. And so the messenger was a really critical element to uh, aspect of what got uh, the farmers to adopt more sustainable farming methods. Yeah, the same content just delivered by a different person. We've talked about this before with, uh, you know, the uh, valedictorian speech from the the kid in, I forget, North Carolina or Oklahoma or somewhere down there. Where he first attributes it to to Trump. And then it was actually a quote from Obama and people cheered and then they booed. So there's a lot of those. It comes into our work too. Sometimes the reason that consultants get brought in is to be a different messenger within an organization that has greater influence. And so, again, sometimes they're saying the same thing that maybe people within the organization are actually saying, but senior leadership isn't listening to people who are you know within the organization versus somebody coming in from the outside yeah true enough okay so that's the uh that's m m that's what's, m what's i incentives which, oh which, one of our favorites yeah we totally love incentives and it really is about uh what kind of uh intrinsic and extrinsic motivators are are ap- appealing to us you know and uh what is what is going to make it um what is going to draw us into uh, the behavior change. Right. Really. Right. Yeah. Okay. What's next? Norms and norms. So we're strongly influenced by what others do. This is the, you know, social proof, a variety of different things. It's the culture that we operate in, whether that be organizational uh, culture, the culture within our region or area, country, uh, all of those things have a big, big impact on how we behave and the norms of of how we we do things are really predictive of if you come into a highly normative situation it's very hard for you to break those norms that are already pre-established yeah. and so corporate, you're going to probably corporate cultures uh you know uh com- country cultures you know mm-hmm. they they exist and they're they're profound yeah okay so we have m we have i we have n now we're gonna go d 
for mind. All right. So D is defaults. And this is, this is huge too. You know, our, our tendency to rely on defaults, uh, status quo bias Mm -hmm. is huge, right? So, uh, it's just easier for us to just let whatever's happening happen, uh, and not, uh, and not interrupt that. Right. And it goes into choice architecture, right? So do you have to quick to, uh, uh, enter your 401k or quick to D, uh, activate your 401k. Huge, so huge difference. Those two different ways in how you design a form have a big impact on how people behave subsequently. Yeah. yeah. All right. So S, salience. Our attention is drawn to what is novel and what seems relevant to us. So this is that vividness. It's yeah. the the why we we you know think about uh, Schindler's List, the movie. And if you ask people about that, the scene that they remember is when the little girl is going through, and they they kind of follow her, and the movie's black and white, and she's in a in a red dress, and that's the only color in the entire movie, in the whole film, and right. and and that's very um, vivid and and different. It stands out. But then there's also the element of this salience and being relevant to us. So it's the idiosyncratic component of this, right? So Absolutely. How, how it fits in with your own idea of who you are and does it impact you? Self-identity, versus, self-schema, those, yeah. those, those things are involved. Yeah. yeah. All right. So go uh, to the next one. Priming. Oh, God. <laughs> What is priming? <laughs> I, I don't even know. I don't <laughs> even know. But I mean, this is certainly one of our favorites as well, right? Because we know how susceptible, how very fragile uh, we are when it comes to being primed by all sorts of, of um, conceivably in innocuous uh, things, right? Uh, for instance, are you wearing, uh, are you primed with socks today, Kurt? Are you wearing super socks or Einstein socks or? No, I'm no. just wearing colorful socks just today. Just colorful socks today. Okay. I figured it was one of those days. It needed to be colorful. So I'm wearing warm socks today because <laughs> it's so cold outside. it's chill outside, man. <laughs> All right. So uh, now we're getting into A and it's Affect, not effect, affect, which is basically about our emotional associations. And so, again, emotions play a big part in our behavior, much more so than we often attribute it to. Uh, We're not the rational players that we tend to like to think we are. We're emotional creatures. Yeah, wow. That was an interesting sound. (laughs) Um, And the C, we're we're almost down to the end here. We're at C, and C is commitments. And I, I think about this with goal setting and mm-hmm. the huge difference between what happens when uh, someone makes a commitment to a goal versus when someone is given a goal and they're not really committed to it. Yeah. Huge, huge differences. Right. This is a bunch of Cialdini's work, right, on, on public promises consistent with our outward appearance, uh, reciprocity, all of those types of things. Yeah. And the last one is E. And that stands for ego. Ego. Oh, yeah. Good old ego. <laughs> yeah, we we miss ego. No, but we're we we are driven uh, to do things that make us feel better about ourselves. Absolutely. And that feed our ego, feed that component. Um, you know, it, it's a big thing. This this uh, it always kind of reminded me of the the Jeremy Bentham. Uh, 
Bentham thing yeah. with uh, seeking pleasure and avoiding pain as well. Right. So this utility is, theory, Jeremy Bentham was yeah. one of the, actually the first to really bring up utility theory from an economic model perspective. Yeah. And his yeah. sense of utility was much broader than how classical economists kind of look at it today. And there's some very interesting pieces there. He was But terrific. we digress. Yeah, he was terrific. <laughs> uh, big fan of Bentham. Uh, okay, so... Um, East. Let's talk about East, right? Is it easy to remember East, is it? Oh, my gosh. I can't believe I did that. Yeah, well, I there did. you go. East. Let's east. go East. So, you know. You go fast. Go well, go East fast. Well, here. you know, and this is one of my favorite models. It is. Right? You, you use this model all the time. All the time. So, East is easy. It starts with making things easy. Make transitions easy. Make it frictionless, right? The the A is make it attractive, right? So, this this kind of, again, since since these are really derived from Mindspace, yep. this is about, you know, the incentive. And the and the priming and the salience. So so you and I fall out of this right away because we're not attractive at all. So, <laughs> I, well, we're not. <laughs> I mean, it's true. That's, I'm that's, just being factual. Here. That is factual. That's why we are doing this on a podcast and not video. There we go. <laughs> I think it's more about making the messages attractive. Oh oh, I'm <laughs> sorry. I'm for, yeah, sorry. No. I was um, going the wrong way there. And uh, okay, so uh, easy, attractive, social. S is social. And oh man, you know, I'm just lately just on an absolute tear when it comes to uh, the importance of of social groups and mm -hmm. who we identify with and what's going on socially. And the last is T for timely. Timely. Yeah, it's got to it's got to happen. In, and and Cialdini, his whole book, Persuasion. Yeah. Dan Pink's new book. It, timeliness is is really important when it comes to uh, affecting behavior change. Right. Good. Okay. So those are the two uh, mnemonics that that kind of the British uh, Insights team brought Came forth, up with, yeah. right? And they used East, not easy, East, uh, because again, many people, <laughs> it's hard to remember mind space and all of the different factors that go into it. I mean, you it know. Is. I mean, Michael gave us a, a look of fear, I think, when we asked him that question almost, but he did a nice job <laughs> of naming did. them off the top of his head. I'm going, yeah, yeah. it is hard. It's however many different things you need to, to remember. But, yeah. I, but they're both very powerful tools to think about the components when you're looking at a situation and yeah. you want to bring a behavioral lens to that situation. They're easy ways to think about. So, all right, in this situation, is it easy? Is it social? Is it attractive? Is it timely? And if one of those isn't, then what can you do uh, in that to make it more easier, to make it easier, to make it more attractive, to make it more social, or to get the timing better on it? Absolutely. Okay, so, so Kurt, um, we just went round and round on that. Tell me what really hit you, uh, what really stands out for you in our discussion with Michael. Um, you know, there's a couple different things. Obviously, the, you know, we could talk about motivated reasoning, um, yeah. about uh, tribes and false polarization around tribes, which I think is really interesting. Um, and I think I want to get to both of those, but I want to start with um, one of the priming things he talked about, where they, they looked at crime and either labeling it as crime as a virus mm -hmm. or crime as uh, like a wild beast. Yeah, the, the, the highly emotive, uh, animalistic kind of, right. kind of things. But, yeah. but the difference in then the policy reaction to the way that it was presented, right, that prime, whether that prime be a virus or if the prime would be uh, a wild animal, 
very different, right? Virus, dirty, unclean. So you clean up the environment. You you take away those opportunities for it to thrive. Um, and so that gets more into prevention and, and various different pieces. Whereas that wild animal, you just the have predator. to... Con- the predator. You have yeah. to control that predator. Yeah. And so it's more about then locking them up and putting them away and throwing away that key. So... Those metaphors mean something. Words matter. Words matter a, a lot. And, and and again, you think about this in how we respond to, you know, and Michael's done a lot of work with, with in, in the political arena and in policy. And so those, the, the way that you frame something going into a policy discussion, again, it can seem innocuous, but has a significant impact on the policy that comes out, which impacts thousands, millions of people. And that's powerful. And and so to be able to be conscious of that and either um, understand that it's being used or to purposefully use that, uh, I think is a is an interesting thing. And again, there could be some ethical questions on that, but it certainly does bring up ethical questions. Uh, it, it's it's not to say that we all we all we don't. We all have some an axe to grind, I suppose, to some degree, right? We all we all have opinions, uh, we all have perspectives, and we're going to express those. It's going to be very difficult to have a conversation or prepare uh, a statement without, you know, that is completely diluted of any kind of perspective, right? Right. So we're going to have it. The words that we choose will make a difference. It's interesting, as you were just talking about that. What came to my mind is how do we talk about it to ourselves? Do we reference crime for our own selves as a virus, or do we reference crime as a wild beast for ourselves and how we do our self-talk and the way that we need to be thinking about how we're talking about those situations? And it can be, you know, crime is a good example, but it could be anything, just think of any type of topic, right? Uh, Our political opponent, um, a... A situation that is dealing with uh, what we're going to do with our children. Um, You know, it could be a variety of different things. Literally, just about anything that we could imagine having a conversation about is going to be influenced by this. Right. Yeah. Right. Absolutely. What else? Well, so I love this component that we we got off on this tangent with Michael about tribes and the impact that tribes have in the social component. And he brought up a really... Which Interesting. Is, which is a favorite topic of ours. It is a t- favorite topic of ours. So, but he brought up this component about a f- uh, false polarization. Uh, false polarization. And I'm going to quote him. So, uh, you also have things like false polarization. So you have a tendency to think that the outgroup is more different from you than it actually is. Yeah, that's that's huge right there, isn't it? Oh my gosh. And yeah. you know, we we do that all of the time. I was actually just having a conversation with James Brewer this morning. Okay. Um, uh, who was one of our first podcast uh, yes, guests on yes, here. He was. Uh, and we started talking about something similar to this where we were looking at uh, you know, the way that we view people and in, in a political perspective, is that they are so far apart. But when you actually look at their um, beliefs around them, they're very they're, they actually overlap a lot more than than we we give them 
you know, we, than we perceive them to be. Yeah. And which is exactly what this is. It's saying that we tend to over exaggerate minor differences and then extrapolate that out to everything else about these which other is, groups. It's particularly problematic right now. Uh, in, exactly. in, in the political discourse, especially, right? Um, but uh, and we, and we've talked about this before about how uh, how uh, marketers have used these tools to uh, the the Mac versus PC uh, mm-hmm. ads. Uh, you know, for many years, you know, Mac was really trying to to show that anything that wasn't a Mac was just sort of uh, dull and slow and um, geeky and and not a good way, right? right. Uh, and uh, and it really works against us to continue. It, it certainly, it, you know, helps from a combative perspective and a competitive perspective, um, but it doesn't necessarily build uh, bridges. No, it doesn't help in building community. No, not at all. It, at least, I take that back. It helps in building community within the in-group. Within the in-group only. But That's it, right. it does not allow for the influx of outside ideas or outside people into either the conversations or that community that is that is pre-established it's actually a really powerful tool to to leverage um to help keep people uh in the in-group and it's why uh, you know i think some of the political discourse that is going on now tends to get further and further either to the left or to the right and so you see you know the democratic party leaning to much more progressive in, in a lot of their rhetoric. You see some of the conservative um, party leaning much more to, you know, the right side. And I'm using the wrong hands as I'm demonstrating this to... Fortunately, to- <laughs> our listeners won't ever know. <laughs> so there you go. But I think that false polarization is a really um, interesting topic and one that we need to be thinking of. And so I, I think for listeners here and for us, right is to step back, take a moment to think, is this, are they really as different as we think they are? Yeah. And most of the time they're not. It's one of the things I love. I'm, I'm in a rotary club um, and my rotary club has a wide diversity of, of people in it, both in from political spectrums, but also age, also, you know, a number of, you know, sexual preferences and various different things. And what I love is that um, those not that they're not talked about, but that we we tend to focus in on the good work that we're doing. And so you see people doing great work and bringing in this yeah, wonderful pieces yeah. without those labels. And so without the labels, you see the people and you're going, look, they're raking leaves with me for these people that can't do it. Who cares if they're... The, the differences don't matter. The differences don't matter. Yeah. We're, we're, we're feeding hungry people. Um, we're doing all of this good work. And it doesn't matter. And so that component, I think, if we can get more of that, I think that is a much more powerful uh, way of looking at this world and and showing up in the world than the element of kind of us versus them. Yeah. yeah. All right. What about you? Oh, gosh. Uh, the, the whole tribal discussion was important to me, false polarization. Uh, the replication, of course, M- Michael's you know, key thing about the replication crisis or the way that he addressed it is just 
<laughs> hey, sometimes sometimes things don't work. And then he went through reasons why the UK uh, tax collection letter didn't work in Albuquerque. Right. And, you know, he, he he dissected that and pulled that apart so that we understood there are good reasons why it didn't work. And I love just that process, right? So. To yeah. the point, and we talked about this with David Yoakum, we talked about this with, with some other guests, there's more to learn sometimes in these tests that don't work yes. than the ones that do. Yeah. We become more intelligent when we find out where the edges are. What, how, what is the, the, the scope of this lane that we're in? We talked about it with Kuhnsmetz, right? And in, in talking through the replication crisis, and he was saying it's not because you have all these fa- right. different factors that come into play and, yeah. and the, the context of, of how you do the replication study. That can be very, very subtle. It can be very subtle, the difference in culture, the differences in different pieces. But what I love about that is that we are, we're able to then really highlight when this application works and when it probably won't work. And so we're getting more specific in it. We tend to over, in my opinion, we tend to overgeneralize scientific research uh, and then attribute it to across all people everywhere at any time. (laughs) Well, in part because it's not very fun to, to say, well, Every time, or it's likely that when uh, 22 students at the University of Pennsylvania are in a room and asked to do this, this is how they're going to behave. You know, yeah. I mean, that just... Well, and then you, you you go to the next step, which is, well, then it's maybe not these 22, it's all students at University of Pennsylvania. And then you go up, well, it's all people in Pennsylvania, or then it's all people in the United States, and then it's all people in the entire world. Uh, and, and I think there's a certain point where we have to be very careful about how we generalize. At the same time, all of these studies do point to uh, it, deeply seated, uh, for instance, when we, when we study biases or heuristics, right? these do point to the fact that they are there, that the, the, the biases and the decision-making tools that we use, those frailties, they are there. They are present in the human condition. Yes, they are. And, it, and it's our, I think, part of us as researchers, uh, our job is to understand how those bi- a to identify those biases right that's yeah. that's a to 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 uncover those from around the you know the human kind of dynamic but b then to help understand how they show up in different contexts contexts uh, so i think that's really important so yeah i i think so too all right and i i see that you want to talk about music cuz you wrote it on a sheet of paper and showed it to me <laughs> Oh, was that supposed to be like a clue between you and me that our listeners weren't supposed to get? Sorry. This is this is like the dream when I when I was a child of going to school with only my underwear on. It just happened in real life. You're wearing like, pants. I, I mean, people just understand. He is wearing pants. There you go. All right. So so music. Let's let's talk. Music. What do you want to talk well, about? Well, uh, you know, just teeing up this uh, this band, um, 
uh, Ockerville River, mm-hmm. uh, you know, from Austin, Texas, just kind of made me start thinking about, you know, cool bands from from Texas, you oh. know, cool uh, musical artists from Texas, uh, Willie Nelson, you know, for oh, instance, yeah. Yeah. or uh, Stevie Ray Vaughan, okay, or uh, Buddy Holly. Buddy you know, Holly's from Texas. Buddy Holly's a Texas I boy. I did not know that. Yeah, so the you know some of the very earliest roots of rock and roll come from Texas. Hmm. Yeah, how about that? The Lone that? Star State. I did the, not know that. The Lone Star State, yes. So d- is there a Texas sound? Do you think that there is a Texas sound? I don't think so anymore. Yeah? I don't think so anymore. I think Austin is making... Uh, is aggregating an Americana vibe okay. about them, much like Nashville is, you know, much more of a country vibe. But um, I don't think I don't think there's a Texas sound anymore. So what? So Austin, you know, home of South by Southwest, yeah, right? Yeah. Um, so I've never been. Have you been? Yes, yes. So, so I have this perception of South by Southwest as. Uh, this kind of really hip, cool, like big bands playing in really small venues and these unheard of bands playing right next to them and all of this thing. Is that uh, over-sensationalized hype of what it might have been way back in the day, but now it's commercial? It's highly commercialized, and and that impression is probably more oversimplified. So there are great bands that play in small venues at South by Southwest, but gosh, I think over the course of five days, there's something like twenty thousand acts that play. Oh my gosh! It's it's insane. So you you know so bars. Um, you know, there, I just remember on Fourth Street, there are all these bars lined up next to each other, and they have four levels. And they're not intended to have music on all of them, but during South by Southwest, every level has a different band on them playing all damn day. You know, so at ten o'clock in the morning, there are four bands playing, and they play for you know thirty minutes or forty, you know, maybe forty minutes, and then they're changing out, and then there's four other bands in every one of these venues. They're just chalking them up only. You know, only like in the nice theaters are they they doing and, and some of the big tents on on some of the, the open air grounds are they doing Lady Gaga and Elton John and okay. you know big concert kinds of things where it's just one show, one act or maybe two acts a night. Okay, but they do. You know, I mean the the it, it occasionally you'll you'll be in a place where. Um, you know, somebody really, really uh, terrific will come in and sit in with it with a with an unknown band. Uh, some great player will will do that, but it's, you can't find you can't predict those kinds of things. Right. Well, with twenty thousand acts going on, it's crazy. Of, yeah. Right. yeah, yeah, it's just crazy. So, Texas music, South by Southwest, enjoy it. All right. So, with that, thank you for listening. If you do uh, feel the urge, please go on out and rate us on your local pod service whatever that would be and uh, we hope you come back and listen again thank you